John, John MacArthur said, the intended and inevitable result of saving faith is a life of good works, and it was for that very purpose that Christ redeemed the church. True saving faith, New Testament Christianity faith, as described in the word of God, is a faith that works. It is a faith that leads to good works, and those good works are the very reason, again, for which we have been saved. James said it this way, that by the will of God we have been brought forth by the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. By faith in the word of God we have been born again. We have been given a new birth, a birth from above, a birth which produces a qualitatively new kind of life in us. And that qualitatively new kind of life that is produced in us is for the purpose of good works, works of righteousness. Righteousness is a term that will show up in our text for this morning. Righteousness has been defined as living right. More precisely, it is living right in the eyes of God, doing what is right in the eyes of God in accord with his will, his purposes, as defined in the word of God. Jesus Christ is called Jesus Christ the righteous in 1 John chapter 2 precisely because he always did what was right in the eyes of God. He kept all the law of God. He perfectly obeyed his Father in heaven. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are made the righteousness of God in him as we put our faith in him as our Savior, the one who bled, died, and rose for our justification. We are given his righteousness by faith. Thus, we ought to live as he lived. I've said it before this way as we've been studying through the letter of James. Again, that good works, works of righteousness, are a result of the new birth. And since that is true, those good works, those works of righteousness, ought to be present no matter the circumstances. If you claim to be a Christian, the claim is not enough. The claim to be a, the claim to be a Christian ought to be accompanied by a change in attitude, which is accompanied by a change in action. And that new life ought to be present whether we are going through good times or whether we are suffering to the point of James. If we only act like Christians when things are going well for us, what good is that? How does that glorify God? Again, if that is true, if we're expected to continue to show our faith through our works, no matter the circumstances, how can we persist in obedience, in righteousness, in the midst of our trials? That's the question that James answers for us this morning. As we return to the letter of James, particularly in chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, it's where we'll focus for this morning. Turn there with me if you haven't. Now read for us all of chapter 1, again, to reacquaint us with the context, and we'll focus in on verses 19 through 25 this morning. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let us pray. Father, as we come before your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things. I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we are to persist in living out our faith, living in a way that is right before God, otherwise known as living righteously, regardless of our trials. In verses 19 through 25, the Holy Spirit teaches us that we can persist in righteousness by first remembering that our anger will not lead to the righteousness of God. He says that in verses 19 through 21. And second, we persist in righteousness by setting our affection on the righteousness of the word. We remember that our anger will not lead to the righteousness of God, verses 19 through 21. And we need to set our affection on the righteousness of the word, verses 22 through 25. Let's look at that first point, that we persist in righteousness regardless of our trials by remembering that our anger will not lead to the righteousness of God. Look at verses 19 through 21 again. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls. Well, again, the context of this chapter is trials. James is addressing the trials and suffering that the people are going through. He's exhorting them, again, to continue to live out their faith for the glory of God. The Christian life, this new life that we have been given in Christ is full. It is a full life. It is complete. And yet much of the part of the process of sanctification for us begins in the mind. Since we have this new life, we must start to think differently about life. I've shared this analogy before. But slaves in American history, when they were emancipated, had a host of different responses to hearing of the emancipation. Some simply did not believe it and so remained enslaved. Others did not did believe it and took every opportunity to flee slavery. And others still did believe it, but it lived so long under slavery that they chose instead to remain enslaved because they didn't know any other way to live. Many a believer find themselves in that same predicament as the last group. They've lived so long enslaved to their own desires, to their own sin, that they've developed these habits and tendencies toward their inward desires that they don't know how to think or react other than the way they've always thought or reacted to sin. When they read passages like Romans chapter 6, verse 7, for the one who has died, they died because they were crucified with Christ. The one who has died has been set free from sin. In chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. When they read those texts, cognitively they understand it, but practically they can't quite figure out how to live in light of it. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're struggling with some sin issue in your life. Perhaps you've been struggling with it for so long that you know nothing else. And you fear that you will never know anything else. Well, that text in Romans chapter 6 is for you. God has, by his grace, raised you from spiritual death to life. You are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Sanctification may be a long road, but you can be assured that it will happen because as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. As he says also in Philippians chapter 2, that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It may take time. It may take us laboring long in prayer that the Lord would give us grace and victory in that area. It will require great accountability from the body of Christ. It will require staying nearer to God's word to be sanctified, but it will happen. Back to our text. James begins this letter exhorting his people to think differently differently about their suffering which again is the issue when it comes to our new life in Christ it's not that we don't have the ability to say no to sin it's not that we don't have the ability to 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 walk in righteousness and to respond differently than we have ever responded to our trials and to difficulty but first we have to start to think differently at the beginning of chapter one he told us the first thing we need to think is that trials are actually a good thing for us in one respect. Your trials can be an occasion for joy. He says to count it all joy, consider it pure joy, ultimately because you know that through your trials, God is working to bring about a mature faith. He's working to give you endurance, and endurance is necessary to a mature faith. That's a very different way of thinking. In our text, James says that there's something else you need to know, you need to consider, you need to think. 
there's a different way of thinking about your trials. And this one's going to be hard for us, but it's something that we need to know, we need to consider. Again, verse 19, know this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I've talked about memory verses that I had to read as a child, usually in the book of Proverbs. I had a short temper growing up, always angry, hot-headed, always ready to give attitude, to let you know how I felt about one thing or another. I remember a book of verses that I received as a gift at some point when I began my spiritual journey towards faith in Christ. And this was one that struck me right between the eyes. I was like, how in the world does God know that this is, what <laughs> this is what's going on in my heart? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I mean, even this past week, I need to be reminded of this. How many arguments would be prevented if we took heed to this verse? How many fights, how much turmoil would be avoided if one or another person in times of conflict would heed the words of this verse? Just the words of this verse. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to hear. Often in times of conflict or potential conflict, we hear not what the other person is saying, but we hear what we choose to hear of what they're saying. Perhaps we're so fired up that we latch on to one or another key word or phrase that they say and disregard everything else and we respond based on that alone. Or what is often more likely, we spend more time thinking about how we're going to respond to them, how we're going to let them have it, than we actually spend listening to what they're saying. We assume so much in times of conflict, and it's usually because we're proud. We're convinced that we're right, convinced that they're wrong, convinced that there's nothing they could say to prove otherwise. Instead of hearing, instead of listening, we have our ears and our hearts closed to them. Relationships are often ended because of a failure to properly communicate. We're too thick-headed to listen. The text here says that we should be quick to hear. We should, to the contrary, incline our ears to what is being said. We always want to be heard, and we're very adept at noticing when we're not being heard. You're not listening to me. And usually we're failing to listen to them. The text says, be quick to hear. Understand the context of this verse, again, is suffering. It's conflict. There's some difficulty that the believers are facing, and they're tempted to respond as we'll see in verse 20, in anger toward those who are perpetu perpetuating the suffering. But whether it's some general idea of suffering or just any relationship, I think this principle could be applied. Listen first. Be a better listener. The first thing that two people in any relationship need to do is learn to listen to one another, to hear each other. Don't assume. Don't try to formulate a response. Just listen Maybe you need to repeat back what they said, and you're repeating back what they said, not just so that you can pretend that you're listening, right? But you're repeating back what they said to make sure that you're really understanding what they've said to you. I mean, that just, just listening to someone and hearing what they're saying is an act of love. If you think about it, right? Like if you don't listen to what someone else is saying, you, you, you're, you're more concerned about yourself at that point than you are concerned about them. The second part, be slow to speak. 
Again, more often than not, the problem in communication is that we fail to listen. And instead of listening, we are quick to formulate a response in our heads. We want to think of the best possible way to shut down any arguments against our point of view. We're not listening to their point of view. We're merely waiting to talk again. We feel like we have a clear perspective on things, the right perspective. The way we're thinking of it makes sense to us. And so all we need is just another chance to explain it to them a different way, and then they'll come around to our point of view. We need to talk more, and they need to listen to us. It's usually how we think about it. The text says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Again, in context, there's some conflict, and it's easy in conflict for us to want to voice our opinion on the matter as quickly as possible. James says, no, the way of godliness is not always the way of voicing your opinion. The way of godliness is sometimes simply to shut your mouth. I think some of us need to work on this. Some of us need to train ourselves not to be quick to share our opinion on a matter or to tell someone what's on your mind right away. Some of us need to train ourselves to labor in prayer for the Lord's help in order that we might become slow to speak. Notice the text doesn't say, don't ever speak. Sometimes there are times when it's necessary to speak, when it would be harmful if you did not speak and share the truth of a matter. The emphasis on the text is that we become slow to speak. That person who has offended you may need to know that they offended you so they don't go off and offend someone else in the same way. However, they don't need to know that they offended you when you're at the boiling point, when they've gotten on your last nerve, so to speak, right? <laughs> they don't need to know right at that minute. At that point, it's better for you to delay speaking in order to settle your nerves, to calm your heart, to gather your thoughts so you can communicate in a way that will be a blessing and not a curse. quick to listen if you're quick to listen then you're ensuring that you have heard all the relevant information that you understand the big picture that you understand from the other person's perspective be slow to speak not quick to spout your own opinion that you're humble in that regard that you acknowledge that your way isn't necessarily the right way or the superior way you're avoiding exploding in emotion when you're slow to speak. And then also he says slow to anger. And I think that doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, right? Don't blow up. Don't allow yourself to become angry quickly. You should be slow to anger. The concrete idea of long-suffering in the Old Testament is a picture of someone with a, a long nose. And the image of having a long nose is that you take a deep breath, particularly when you're agitated. You know, sometimes when, you know, you're a little agitated or upset, you take that nice calming breath. Well, the person with the long nose, the person who's long suffering, the person who doesn't get angry quickly, takes a nice long draw in. They're long suffering. They're patient. They're not quick to anger. It's a slow boiling pot. I believe there's a necessary relationship between these three. Those who are quick to listen and slow to speak will not be quick to anger. 
Well, whether there's a relation to the two or not, the point is that this is a command. And I want you to get that. As a Christian, as one who's born again, we are commanded to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's not optional. It doesn't matter what your personality is like. You can be all the type A you want, but this text overrides your personality. The command of God overrides your personality. You need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I wonder if that describes your temperament, Christian. Does that describe your disposition in times of conflict? Perhaps you do well in public, but if we were to peel back the curtain of your home, around your family, behind closed doors, in the most intimate of places, when there's conflict, Christian, are you quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? Again, it doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter who's on the other end of the conflict. This is the expectation that your Savior has for you. This is his command for you. Now, that it is a command should be reason enough for you to obey, but the Lord makes clear why it's so important in the next verse. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why should we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger in times of conflict when we're suffering, when we're struggling, when there's turmoil? Because our anger will not lead to the righteousness of God. Again, we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been brought forth by the word of truth so that we might be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. We've been set forth as a first batch of this new creation in all its glory, blessed beyond measure above the rest of all God's creation, set apart by this new birth to affect his righteousness on earth. Because that is true, whether you are right or not, in whatever conflict you find yourself, your anger will not lead to God's righteousness. Your response in anger will not bring forth God's righteousness. Now this flies in the face of the world's concept of what is right. The world values those who speak up for themselves no matter what. The world values those who speak their mind no matter what. It looks up to them. The world, though it may not say this outright, the world looks up to those who have a short fuse, those who have such outbursts of angers that it causes all around them to tremble, that people are walking on eggshells around them. We all know people like that. A parent, a friend, a co-worker, a boss. Maybe it's you. The one you have to walk around on eggshells with. Because you know if you do something wrong, you're going to trigger them and they're going to go off. So people usually end up just giving them whatever they want to avoid conflict. James's point is that that's not God's way. That's not befitting a Christian. We ought to want to do things God's way. We ought to want to see that in every circumstance, God's way prevails, but it's not going to prevail by way of our anger. The text says that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I feel like I should probably make a comment about what is typically referred to as righteous indignation. Sometimes people talk about righteous indignation and they put that kind of in a separate category. You know, we shouldn't be angry, but, you know, when there's righteous indignation, then it's okay. And people throw all kinds of things under the category of righteous indignation, right? 
I remember a deacon in a church where I was previously attending and serving as a deacon at the time, commenting on some point that the pastor of the church was upset with what was in his words, righteous indignation, because the deacon board hadn't agreed on a particular topic. And I remember thinking at the time, like, who in the world does he think this pastor is? He ain't Jesus. I mean, Jesus was righteously indignant when the money changers were making a mockery of the temple for profit, right? He overthrew the tables and sent the money changers running. His indignation was righteous. It was righteous precisely because he was indignant that God was being dishonored. And that was his whole motivation. Jesus wasn't thinking about the inconvenience done to him. That's usually what we're thinking about. There's some inconvenience to us, something that has offended us, something that has hurt us. And maybe we're right in a sense that, you know, biblically the issue is, is, is right and we have a clearer picture of that. But usually the issue that troubles us the most is how we feel about it. And if, it, if, if the line is crossed between viewing something in terms of how it offends God, and how it offends his glory and his holiness and trouble that has come to us, then we've moved beyond righteous indignation. We've moved into our own sphere of offense. So I think we have to be careful labeling things in that way. Well, getting back to the text, verse 21 James says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Therefore, he says, since you know that you ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger because your anger will not lead to or produce God's righteousness. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away these things from you. The term put away is like put away your coat, right? You walk into a warm house in a dead of winter and now because there's no further need for it, you must put away your coat. Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. The filthiness and rampant wickedness is a reference to the response of anger. That very worldly response of anger, the kind of anger that does not work the righteousness of God. He says, put that away from you. Again, we read Romans 6 earlier. We can obey this command to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. That worldly response to conflict, we can obey this command because we've been set free from sin. We may still have those triggers that kind of set us off. And if we have those triggers, it's just because we're human and we're foolish and we still struggle with sin. We may still have those triggers, but we don't have to respond to those triggers because we have been set free from bondage to sin. So we don't have to be that way. If we've been crucified with Christ and the sin that we had been enslaved to no longer has authority over us. Again, sanctification is a process. And this process of sanctification is not just about what we do or do not do, rather. It's also about what we choose to do. It's not just enough to put away the filthiness and rampant wickedness, but James says that we also have to put on something. So we need to stop doing one thing and we need to do something else. And as you read through the New Testament and it, and it talks in terms of sanctification and things that we should stop doing, it never ends with just don't do this. I think sometimes people are always looking for that list. What are the things that I can't do, right? 
because somehow that makes us feel better about ourselves. If I just don't do these things, then I'm good. Well, sanctification is not just about not doing these things. It's also about doing something else. It's, it's putting off one thing and putting on something else. Well, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and, or instead, verse 21 again, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's not your understanding of the world, your perception of what is right or wrong. It is certainly not the value system of the world that should govern your response in the midst of conflict, but rather it is the word of God. He says, receive with meekness. When we're offended, meekness or humility is the furthest thing from our minds. James is saying that it must be the first thing on your mind, not the offense, not your ability to lash out and make your offense known. He says that we need to respond with meekness or humility. We need to respond with eagerness to submit to, again, not our own desires or inclinations, but to the will of God as clear through the word of God. That ought to be our default response when it comes to the word of God, humility and meekness, not our will, but his will be done. We've referenced before Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. All of your ways, including times of conflict, we need to acknowledge the Lord. We need to look to the Lord to see how we ought to respond to one thing or another. Our scripture reading was from Psalm 1. Again, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Blessing comes not by walking in the ways of the world and the ways of the wicked, but rather by walking in, trusting and delighting in the way of the Lord as made clear through his word. We need his perspective in times like those. Thus, we need to be people who regularly take delight in his word. Again, Psalm 1 says day and night. We've discussed the Hebrew poetry before and the idea of using two parts of a whole to describe the whole thing day and night he's not saying just read the bible once in the morning and read the bible once at night and you're good he's saying you need to have an attitude of coming before god's word daily all throughout the day his word needs to be on your mind on your heart the idea of meditation in psalm one is kind of like a cow chewing cud and i think i've used this illustration before and my kids love when i use this particular illustration of cows chewing cud because you know that cows eat grass and they have multiple stomachs, and so you'll see them take a bite of grass, and they'll chew it up, they'll swallow it, and then they have to bring it back up to chew on it a little bit more, and they keep working it over. And that's, that's all a part of the digestive process of cows. And I know you, all, you guys were all looking forward to hearing about that this morning. <laughs> but that picture of chewing it over multiple times is the picture of meditation. When we talk about meditation in, a, in biblical theology, we're not talking about the Eastern sort of idea of meditation where you empty your head of everything and you just kind of sit there and you chant and you moan or whatever kind of nonsense they got going on there. But the biblical idea of meditation is filling your mind with God's word, with God's thoughts and chewing it over and over and over and over. And maybe this is you sitting down and writing out a verse over and over again. Maybe this is you listening to the passage of scripture over and over again. We talk about this during our um, Bible study on Wednesday evenings, some of the different tools for studying God's word. And the most important thing you can do is read the passage of scripture over and over again. Read it in different versions. 
because sometimes you'll get a different sense of what's being said. But we need to meditate on God's word. And he says as we meditate on it regularly, as we meditate on it day and night, then we will be blessed. We'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. And that tree is, is so um, well nourished that it yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And you can imagine the purpose of that analogy. Back to our text, James says that we ought to receive with meekness the implanted word. The implanted word is a reference to the new birth. He says that this word is that which is able to save your souls. If it is able to save your souls, if it has brought you forth by virtue of the new birth, then certainly the word will help you to respond in righteousness to any conflict. So that leads us to our next point. Again, we need to persist in righteousness, seeking to do things the right way, God's way, in accord with the new life that we have been granted in Christ. In order to do that, we must remember that our anger does not lead to the righteousness of God. We should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The second, we must set our affection on the righteousness of the word, verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, where he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James's point is clear. We must do what the word of God says. We must be so, again, to use the terms of Psalm 1, delighted in the law of God, delighted in his word, which have, have such a disposition towards meditating on the word of God that we can do nothing but obey it. The Puritans often spoke of the affections of the heart. Part of the goal of preaching, they said, was to stir up the affections of the heart toward the things of God. Their understanding was that the affections of the heart are ultimately what move behavior in a person. The motivation to act begins with an understanding that the thing we're acting upon is valuable and true. Once we perceive it to be valuable or true, we are free to desire it. Once we desire it, we're moved to pursue it as a course of action. But it all starts with the understanding. And so they preached to the understanding they preach to the mind to captivate the mind with the truth of God's word because that would lead to stirring up the affections toward the things of God to bring it back to the text James has just convinced us that our perspective on troubles and conflict is not good enough our natural perspective leads to anger Therefore, we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It is God's perspective that we ought to have. We ought to be patient and humble before God's perspective, and his perspective is only found in his word. That same word which brought us forth, that same word which is able to save our souls, that same word in which we find his righteousness. Being convinced that his word is what we need the most, that his word is true and valuable, we're now free to both desire his word, and we ought to long to be doers of his word. Again, be doers of the word. If you know that it is the word of God and not your anger that will lead to righteousness, then you must pursue his word. You must seek to be a doer of the word. If you're a hearer only, then you're deceiving yourself, James says. Well, what does that mean? The most obvious answer is that you're likely deceiving yourself into thinking that you're truly believing. 
If true faith works, if New Testament faith is the kind of faith that is exhibited in good works and works of righteousness, but you have no works of righteousness, you hear the word of God, but you do not do the word of God. You have no compulsion to obey the word of God. If you say that you are truly believing, but do not do the works of a believer, then you are deceiving yourself. If you say that you are believing but do the works of an unbeliever, to the point of the the text, you respond in anger, unmitigated anger. Your pattern of behavior in response to trials is that you're quick to ignore others, quick to speak and quick to anger. If that describes the general pattern and character of your life, then you are deceiving yourself into thinking that there's faith when there's not. One author said, any response to the gospel that does not include obedience is self-deception. If a profession of faith in Christ does not result in a changed life that hungers and thirsts for God's word and desires to obey that word, the profession is only that, a mere profession, end quote. Verses 23 and 24, James illustrates. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. This is an illustration from the mind of James. A picture is of one who goes and stands before a mirror to make not a casual flippant glance at themselves, but one who looks, as he says, intently in the mirror at his face. He takes time to study his face, his eyes, the shape of his nose, his mouth, his complexion, whether his earlobes are connected or detached. He looks intently at his faith in the mirror, and then he goes away, not five minutes, not ten minutes, not two hours, but immediately forgets what he looks like. How crazy would that be? I mean, can you imagine? You would assume that there's something either wrong with your vision or wrong with your memory or significantly wrong with your ability to function since you've seen yourself in a mirror many times before. All things being equal, you should have no problem remembering what you look like, especially after you stare at yourself in a mirror for a long period of time. But as ridiculous as this illustration seems, those who hear the word of God but do not do the word of God are just like that person. They're just like the person who looks at themselves in the mirror and immediately forgets what they just saw. Again, the word of God is how we're brought forth. The word of God is how we attain to the new birth. The word of God is the seed of our new life. The word of God is that which has saved our souls. Thus, the word of God ought to be as a mirror reflecting the new life that is in us. We ought to be able to look into the word of God and see ourselves, see the new life abiding in us. To put it another way, when we read of the righteousness of God in the word of God, what we should see is a mirror image of the new life that is within us. If we don't see that, if we don't see our actions, our good works mirrored in the word of God, then we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're in the faith when we actually are not. If you claim to be a Christian and you want some kind of assurance, some kind of test to know whether you are or not, The only test that you need is the word of God. In the words of Psalm 1, do you delight in the ways of the wicked or do you delight in the word of God? In James's words, are you a hearer only of the word or are you an effectual doer of the word? Do you see in the word of God truth that you want to follow, a life that you want to emulate, works that you want to desire and walk in? 
As I've said many times before, this is not perfection. It's rather progression. The New Testament teaching on sanctification is that it's a process. The question is, what is the normal course and direction of your life? How is your life generally characterized? It ought to be generally characterized by obedience and a drawing near to the word of God, a desire for the word of God, a desire to obey the word of God, not perfectly, but progressively growing. If that's not true of you, then you are deceiving yourself into thinking that you're something when you're not. So many today, so many churches or so-called churches, so many Christians are desperately trying to find common ground between the church and the world. They're trying to find a way to relate to the world, to be more like a social club with good values than anything resembling the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. The reason why the church cannot value the same things as the world, it cannot live and affirm all the ways of the world, is because the life of the church is qualitatively different than that of the world. The values of the church, the desires of the church, the end for which the church exists is wholly different than the world. The church is made up of those who confess that we are born again, meaning we have been given a qualitatively different and new life from God. Not the same life that we've always lived, not the same values and desires that we've always had, but new life from God. And because we have a qualitatively different and new life, then we must necessarily live differently than the world. We must swim upstream. There are no homosexual Christians, not because Christians hate homosexuals or because somehow we think we're better, but because the New Testament is clear that God has given the Christian new life and it is that new kind of life that agrees with the word of God concerning what is good and right and true for human sexuality and physical desires. That's why. It's not because we hate people. It's because the new life that we've been given agrees with God's word when it comes to sexuality. There are no transgender Christians, not because we hate transgender people or because we think it's the worst kind of sin. No. There are no transgender Christians because God has given us a qualitatively different kind of life than the rest of the world, the kind of life that agrees with the word of God concerning maleness and femaleness and its centrality to what it means to be human. To the point of this passage, Christians, there should be no angry, resentful, hateful, spiteful Christians because God and Christ has given us a qualitatively new kind of life a kind of life that is humble before the word of God, that agrees with the word of God when it says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The one who is a doer looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. This is akin to the looking intently into the mirror. It's not a casual glance. This is a gaze. This is one who looks deeply into the word of God. This is one who, again, to note the parallel of Psalm 1, delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. I encourage you all to read whatever 
book of the Bible we're studying through on Sunday mornings in your own time. Frequently, I've encouraged you to do that. Read it over and over again. If you notice, I usually try to read and reread significant sections of Scripture on Sunday morning, even if we're only studying a few verses. And not only that, but as we go through each passage of Scripture, I will read and reread each verse or section of verses in your hearing. Why is that? Because it is looking intently into the Word of God, Paul says elsewhere, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It's looking intently at the Word of God and being exposed to the Word of God frequently that is so necessary for the soul. I'm not so thick-headed to think that it's my words that's (laughs) the most important on Sunday morning. It's God's word that's the most important for you. I like this quote. It's a bit of a longer quote. James's appeal is for the believers to seize every opportunity to increase their exposure to scripture, to take advantage of every privileged occasion to read God's word or to hear it faithfully preached or taught. The sincere, eager desire for such learning is one of the surest marks of a true child of God. When he's specially blessed, he turns to the word to find passages of thanksgiving and praise. When he's troubled, he searches for words of comfort, encouragement, and strength. In times of confusion, he searches for words of wisdom and guidance. When he's tempted, he searches out God's standard for purity and righteousness for power to resist. The word is a source of deliverance from temptations and trials. It becomes the most welcome friend, not only because of what it delivers us from, but also because of what it delivers us to. Glorious intimate and loving communion with our heavenly Lord, end quote. Back to our text again. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres. This is James' way of honoring the word of God. He calls it the perfect law meaning that the word of God is perfect in every way, lacking in nothing, even as God is perfect in every way. Every precept, every command, every correction is perfect. And because the word of God is perfect, is able to make us perfect or mature, reminiscent of what David says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the, testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much Fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Hear the focus on the word of God and how necessary and important the word of God is. I love Psalm 19 because the earlier part of Psalm 19, if you remember, talks about the sun as a bridegroom going from one end of the heavens to the other. And he emphasizes the fact that as the sun goes from one end of the heavens to the other, there's nothing hidden from its heat. How important and necessary the heavens are declaring the glory of God. How are the heavens declaring the glory of God? They're declaring the glory of God as we see this beautiful sun. This ball of gas burning billions of miles away, right? And it's providing heat and nourishment and vitality and strength to everything on planet Earth. 
And just as vital as the sun is for life, what? The word of God is equally vital. And that's the point. He calls it the perfect law. He also calls it the law of liberty. In the eyes of the world, ears of the world, that would seem like a contradiction, right? How can any law lead to liberty? Well, in biblical theology, the law, the word of God, frees us from slavery to sin. That's part of what we discussed in Romans 6, right? Jesus himself said that the truth shall set you free, the truth of the word of God. While the world may view any kind of law that comes from God as prohibitive and binding, the Christian sees the word of God as that which liberates us from the law of sin. It liberates us from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. The word of God liberates us and makes us free to become slaves of righteousness. Again, doing what's right in the eyes of our creator. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law which is perfect and which makes perfect, the law of liberty, the law which brings liberty to those who are captivated by it, the one who looks into it and perseveres. James qualifies his term here, persevere, in the next phrase. What does it mean to persevere? He says to persevere is to be not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. To persevere in the perfect law, the law of liberty, is to be a doer of the word. James says this one will be blessed in his doing. No deception, only blessing. There's blessing to come in the doing. Remember the whole point of this section is to remind us that there's no excuse for disobedience no matter the circumstance. Again, we often go off the rails when we're in the midst of trials when there's some conflict brewing. We lose our tempers. We lash out at others. Perhaps we drift away from the fellowship, from prayer, from the word of God, all trying to figure out how to make things work. James is trying to encourage believers to persevere in the faith. He says you have need of endurance. The kind of life that you've been given by Christ, the kind of faith that you were born with from the word of truth, from the implanted word is a faith that works no matter the circumstances. And if we lash out in anger to try to get things figured out, we're going to have no reward from that. James says to the contrary, there is blessing in persevering in the word of God and continuing to persevere in being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. The question is, do you desire blessing in the midst of your trials, in the midst of conflict? And if that is so, then we ought to pursue the word of God. I asked a similar question before. We've talked about the word of God, but what place does the word of God have in your life? Is the word of God just a casual acquaintance with you? Are you vaguely familiar with it? Do you have your weekly intake of the word of God on Sunday morning and disregard it for the rest of the week? I endeavor to provide you with meat from the word of God every Sunday morning as a part of my shepherding responsibilities, but that is not enough. It's especially not enough as you encounter various trials throughout the course of your week. You need to take delight in God's word daily meditate on it daily allow your affections for the things of God to be stirred daily by the truth of his word if you don't have one I would urge you to find a plan of Bible reading that will get you into the text daily if you can't find a good Bible reading plan again just read the text of scripture that we're studying for the Sunday read that be encouraged through that 
the faith of the New Testament, the church of Jesus Christ, is to be a gathering of doers of the word. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Lord, I came to church every Sunday. Lord, I was at the potluck. I was at the 4th of July celebration. I sat out there in the chair in the shade. I was there. My name was on the roll. I helped to make a decision about the roof. Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then he says, then everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock to the contrary everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it are you a wise man who built his house upon the rock of the word of God Are you seeking to be saturated with the word of God that you humbly, willingly, eagerly obey it, even in the midst of the most discouraging, distracting, and disheartening trials? Again, don't forget the promise of this text that we'll be blessed in the doing as we pursue the righteousness of God from his word. God says you will be blessed in the doing. Yes, we'll be blessed in the end, when the end comes and Jesus returns, but we'll also be blessed in the doing of what is right as we seek his word daily. Well, again, true faith is a faith that works. It is a faith that is manifested in the works of righteousness, doing what is right in the eyes of God. That ought to be true no matter the circumstance we find ourselves in. And again, James has reminded us that we persist in righteousness by first remembering that our anger will not lead to the righteousness of God and we persist in righteousness by setting our affection on the righteousness of the word may the Lord make these things true of us father thank you for this day thank you for your word which is true your word which sanctifies us your word which helps us to understand righteousness Your word which sanctifies our hearts and our minds and stirs up our affections toward the things that are right in your eyes. Father, we pray that as we come before your word each and every Sunday, as we come before your word daily, that you would speak to us through your word. That again, you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word that you would transform and renew our minds by your word, that we might seek to prove what is good and acceptable and right in your eyes as we walk and live out our faith for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.